You're listening to a sermon from Pasco Vale Church of Christ. To hear more of our teaching or to find out about the church, please visit our website, pvcc.org.au. What a remarkable week that we have had. We have had a time of mourning for a much-loved queen and a time of celebration of the grand finals. So commiserations for those Sydney Swan supporters and congratulations to the Geelong supporters. Go Cats, go! Well, looking back um, at the funeral service of Queen Elizabeth II of Great Britain earlier this week, it was one of the biggest events that the world has ever witnessed. Four billion people apparently have watched this all over the world. And the Queen's funeral gave many a time to reflect and celebrate the achievements of this remarkable Queen. Longest reigning monarch in modern history. A much beloved Queen. A much beloved Queen whose life exemplified service dignity and sacrifice, commitment to her duty, but most important, her deep conviction to her Christian values and steadfastly holding her faith in God till the end of her life. So a queen whose life exemplified service, dignity and sacrifice. A truly amazing woman. And as we reflect on the future under King Charles III, there is a sense that this glorious and illustrious days are over. A strong hand is required to guide the nation and the world through the challenges of climate change, pandemic, food shortages, war, natural disasters and the prospect of an economic disaster or recession, sorry. Uh, So there is much uncertainty about the future as we all see and we all need God's help to get us through this. And in a sense, as we come to Ezekiel, we see the same sentiments. Many felt, as we have just felt, and reflected on Queen Elizabeth's funeral. The early years of Israel under King David and King Solomon, the greatness, the abundance, the wealth, the might of the nation was just without comparison. Just read 1 Kings chapter 10. And now, 400 years later, they are in big trouble. They are clinging on to survival. The kingdom is reduced to one small kingdom of Judah. They are surrounded by their enemies and they are struggling to survive. And thousands have been forcibly deported to Babylon to be brainwashed and re-educated. And among them, of course, Ezekiel and Daniel. It is a challenging and troubling time. There is uncertainty about the future. There is every indication that they will be destroyed 
and wiped out as a nation and as a people. And Ezekiel brings God's message of the coming judgment as well as hope to his people. So this morning, as we cover God's glory and judgment from chapter 18, we want to um, come before the Lord and ask him to lead us. So let us bow our heads for a word of prayer. Our Father, this morning as we look into the book of Ezekiel, open our eyes that we may see glimpses of truth that you have for us. Place in our hands the wonderful key that shall unlock and set us free. And silently now we wait for thee. Ready, my God, your will to see. Open our eyes, illumine us, O Spirit divine. Amen. So we are third in a series of the sermons on Ezekiel, as we have just said. You recall this map from previous sermons. Ezekiel is prophesying from Babylon. He was one of the thousands of exiles taken as a captive. And the distance of Jerusalem to Babylon is almost a thousand kilometers. Very, very far. He's a long way from home. However, the majority of the Israelites were still in Jerusalem. And there is a king, King Zedekiah, that was still on the throne in Jerusalem. Although the Babylonians were dominant in the region, they are the superpower, but they have allowed the nation to exist as long as they pay taxes to Babylon. And during this time, most of the Israelites living they were in uh, Jerusalem, they were actually under an illusion, illusion that God would deliver them from their enemies. That was what their leaders, their prophets and priests were telling them. God will deliver us. God will not allow his holy city to be destroyed. He will not allow his temple to be destroyed. He will deliver. And of course, we see from our previous sermons that Ezekiel comes to the people of Israel with a most unfavorable message to them. They are all under the judgment of God. There is big trouble around the corner and they need to turn back to God. So last week, we heard about the glory of God leaving um, the temple in chapter 11 moving east towards uh, where the exiles were in Babylon. So looking at an overview of the um, book of Ezekiel, we can see that it's divided into two sections. The first part, chapters 1 to 24, is actually about the messages of judgment. And the second half uh, is about the messages of hope. So the next uh, few uh, series will be on the messages of hope. However, um, looking at uh, the background of our chapter this morning, if you have read the previous chapter, chapter 15 to 17, uh, you would see that the, um, um, God actually represents 
uh, Israel and gave them the reasons why they are under judgment. He represents uh, this in a lot of picture image uh, of what the nation was going through. It's a picture imagery. And this was used by God to actually shock the people regarding their spiritual condition. They point to a very stark reality. They've gone far from their true purpose as a people of God. They're actually quite worthless to God. They have not been faithful to Him. They have abandoned God and they have turned to following pagan nations. So let us look at Ezekiel chapter 18 this morning. Glory and judgment. I've got four points this morning. A correction of a misinterpretation of the scriptures, an illustration of a very clear principle, a key principle. There are two objections, whether they are valid or whether they are not, we'll decide, and that's an invitation. So correction, illustration, objection, and invitation. Chapter 18 is often uh, seen as a court case. The defendant is God, and the plaintiff are the people of Israel, and we, the readers, are called to be jurors. The chapter opens in verse 1. The word of the Lord came to me. What do you mean by repeating this proverb concerning the land of Israel? The fathers have eaten sour grapes, and the children's teeth are set on edge. As I live, declares the Lord God, this proverb shall no more be used by you. So God tells the um, Israelites that they have been misinterpreting the scriptures. And they keep saying this popular saying. The fathers have eaten sour grapes and the children's teeth are set on edge to console themselves in their troubles. So what does this mean? What does it actually mean? The meaning is something like this. The father's wrong and sinful actions are like sour grapes that they have planted and the children are feeling this awful taste in their teeth. This is like saying their current difficulties and troubles are the result of their wrong actions of the previous uh, generation of their parents uh, and you know, their forefathers. And they are suffering because of that. Their desperate situation basically is that it is not their doing and there was nothing they could do about it. They were just innocent victims of an injustice that were done by a previous generation. But God says, wrong. This is the correct interpretation in verse 4. Behold, all souls are mine, the soul of the Father as well as the soul of the Son is mine. The soul that sins shall die. God's answer is that as the creator of the universe, he has created humanity 
and he knows us intimately. And the truth is that the soul that sins shall die. And this is the principle of personal responsibility. The correct interpretation is that we are all personally responsible for the choices we make in our lives. If we sin, we are liable and face the penalty for our sin, which is eternal death. And so if we sin, we will die. But, if, but we will not die because of our father's sin or our grandfather's sin. So this principle of personal responsibility for our sins is actually theologically very significant. But how did the Israelites come to this understanding, this wrong understanding, this error on the scriptures? Well, we could turn to scriptures that they were misinterpreting. It comes from Exodus 20, verse 5, and Numbers 14. It says here, For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me. That's Exodus 20. The Lord is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, forgiving iniquity and transgressions. But he will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the fourth, third and fourth generation. Well, doesn't it say that God visits the iniquity of the fathers on their children to the third and fourth generation? God's answer to that is no. They are wrong. They cannot put the blame on the previous generation. They are responsible for their own sin. And the prophet Jeremiah also said the same thing. Jeremiah chapter 31 verse 30. Everyone is responsible for their own sin. So the truth is that they have actually forgotten the scriptures. And when we look at the Bible, we can, say, we can see that uh, in the past, this is what was interpreted. The past generations actually got it right. So if we turn to 2 Kings um, 14, it says here, but he did not, this is about the king, King Amaziah. That was 200 years before Ezekiel. But he did not put to death the children of the murderers according to what is written in the book of the law of Moses. So this was already written huh, in the book of uh, law of Moses hundreds of years before Ezekiel where the Lord commanded fathers shall not be put to death because of their children nor shall children be put to death because of their fathers but each one shall die for his own sin. So it is clear that the Israelites had misinterpreted this principle and used this oft-repeated uh, proverb to justify their situation. And, uh, well, it does uh, look like, um, and, and, and we are not surprised that they have got this error 
because uh, sinful man has always been doing this all through history, using the word of God to justify their sins. So using human wisdom instead of God's wisdom. I think one um, obvious reason is that it was very convenient. It was very convenient for them to put the blame on others. So the Israelites can conveniently say, hey, it's not my problem. It's uh, our forefathers, my parents. And this is not surprising as we can see it reflected in our own life and in my own life. I can see that I'm just as guilty as they are. Well, remember our uh, sermon series on resolving conflicts? See that uh, in, indeed, as we face um, our own faults, we are not um, easily uh, brought to a stage of taking the uh, responsibility. It is so easy to blame others. It is not me, but him or her. Um, it's so easy to see the speck in your brother's eye, but we miss the big log that is in our own eye. There was also spiritual pride. They were under the delusion that they have the blessing of God, and they were still going to the temple. They were still worshipping there, and they were performing all the right rituals. But their hearts were hardened uh, to the truth of God. So in reality, they were worshipping idols of the world and they have abandoned God and God has abandoned them. The main issue is that as they turn away from God's law, they have allowed the nations around them to influence them. They fell into idolatry and abominable practices. They have allowed the world around them to shape their values and actions instead of the Word of God. Last year, the 2021 census released by the Australian Bureau of Statistics showed that for the first time, Australians professing to be Christians are down to 44%. Five years ago, it was 55%. Ten years ago, 61% were professing Christians. Now, 39% oh, profess that they have no religion at all. Double the 20% just five years ago. The census shows that only 7% of Australians regularly attend church. That is, 7 out of 100 attend church regularly. And so today, you can see that majority of Australians do not consider themselves Christians. It is a very sobering and alarming fact. The world idolizes success, pleasure, health, beauty, sex, sports, they're all calling out to us from all walks of society. So is the steady decline in our beliefs because we are more interested in fulfilling 
our careers, chasing our dreams, making money, improving our social media influences, pursuing the pleasures of this world, etc., etc., than spending more time with God? Has God been relegated to a second place and our knowledge of the word has declined? The challenge for us is really how much time are we spending with the word of God and how much time are we spending with the things of this world? So if we are spending our time on other things rather than the word of God, are we surprised that our values and ideas are being shaped by the world around us? A very uh, interesting quote from A.W. Tozer. This is what he says. The church right now has more fashion than passion. It's more pathetic than prophetic. Is more superficial than supernatural. Quite a strong statement. And if we look at it, maybe that's the reason why Christianity in Australia is in decline. So may we pray that God will give us wisdom to avoid these idols that are stumbling us and blinding us to the truth of God. May we pray for the Holy Spirit's power to guide and lead us into the truth. But there is more. Let's look at our next point. God gives us the illustration, an illustration of three generations of this principle of personal responsibility. He lists a man, his son, and his grandson. I hope you can read this. Uh, <laughs> you may have to squint it. But uh, there are three generations there. <clears throat> verse 5 to verse 9, the first column, is the example of a man who is righteous and does what is right. His list of virtues are seen there. He does not eat on the mountains. Uh, not too sure what that means, but in pagan religions, they used to worship at in high places and it's always related to idolatry okay so there are probably temples on the mountains and they are um, going there to eat and worship so he does not uh, he does not uh, eat on the mountains he worships Lord God he is faithful in marriage he's honest and does not oppress others lives in obedience to God and so on God's verdict is that if he does this, he will surely live. Verse 9. However, in the second column, we see he has a son, verse 10, who is violent, a shadow of blood. He goes and eats on the mountain, commits uh, idolatry. He commits adultery with his neighbor's wife, oppresses the poor, robs and exploits others. God's verdict in verse 13, is that he shall not live. Why? Because these actions are abominable to, God, to, the, to the Lord, and he shall surely die. 
And if this wicked man, this is the third generation in column three, has a son, and this son sees his father's sinful ways and does not follow this path, he pursues the path of righteousness, he does not eat on the, on the mountains, he does not commit adultery, does not oppress and exploit others, and walk in the Lord's way, the verdict in verse 17, he shall not die. He shall surely live. So again, God shows us that the person who seeks to do good and seek after God's righteousness will live, but the one who seeks evil will die. And the next generation that comes, if they do good, they will live. So the scripture explains God's judgment is reserved for individuals who persist in rebellion against God by choosing to perpetuate the sins of their ancestors. And when you look at the verses again in Exodus and Numbers, in the light of this illustration, you see that difference. If you look at Exodus 20 and Numbers 14, it becomes clear to you that the generation that comes after the sins that are passed onto it is because the previous, the new generation choose to hate God and they choose to be guilty before God in their wickedness. They willingly choose the path of sin. So remember again, we are in the court scene. The plaintiff now raises the objection. Objection number one. Why shouldn't the son suffer for the iniquity of the father? The objection comes from the reasoning that in our upbringing, shouldn't our parents share the blame if they didn't give us a godly home, a godly influence? Being brought up in a wicked and sinful life makes us, you know, we could be fallen into sin because of that. Don't they share the blame? And God's answer is no. It is still your responsibility. So the, the idea is that although you're brought up in a sinful um, family, yes, there is that influence. There is the consequences of the sins of your father that are there. But still, you have a choice. So when you look at the three, uh, the, the illustrations again, um, you find that God has actually prepared the actions of the three generations and compared them. And why is that so? Because the first generation, there is the list of what uh, has been done. That's the son has a choice, right? He can either, the wicked son, can either follow uh, the father, the righteous father, but he chooses to do evil. But the grandson has an even greater choice. He can either follow the righteousness of his grandfather or 
the sinful life of his father. But he chose us to do what is righteous. And so he will live. So when we look at this, the answer to this objection is that God clearly states again that if a wicked person turns away from his sins, he will live. But if a righteous person turns away from his righteousness and does injustice, he shall not live. So God is very clear again that being brought up in a godly home with godly influence is no guarantee that they will be saved. Conversely, being brought up in a wicked and sinful home with all the influences around you, there's no guarantee that you will be lost. Which is not surprising for us because really it's the personal faith in Christ that saves us, not a godly home or a sinful home. Or which. So really each person will be responsible for their right and wrong choices in life. And their choices will determine their eternal destiny. However, there is a second objection. The way of the Lord is not just. God is unfair. And essentially God answers in the same response. He repeats his previous arguments. As we have mentioned, it does not matter whether you are brought up in a wicked or righteous home. Because God's judgment at the end will be whether we have been wicked or righteous. So if we have lived a sinful and wicked life at the start of our life, but if we repent and turn to Him, we will live. If we have followed God's way as a righteous person, but somewhere along the line you've decided, hey, this is not for me, I'm going to forsake my righteous ways and turn to, my, to a sinful lifestyle, then we will be facing the judgment of God. So remember, this is also very important that we cannot use this verse to support the fact that you can lose your salvation if you are a Christian. This, this passage is not about eternal security, but it is about personal choices and our responsibility for making our choice. And some of these choices can be right or wrong in our life. But the final determination is whether we are still following God or following the world at the end. We are responsible for those choices and God will judge us for them. My last point is that there is an invitation. God invites us to life. Therefore I will judge you, O house of Israel, everyone according to his ways, declares the Lord God. Repent and turn from all your transgressions, lest iniquity be your ruin. Cast away from you all the transgressions that you have committed, and make yourselves a new heart and a new spirit. 
Why will you die, O house of Israel? For I have no pleasure in the death of anyone, declares the Lord God. So turn and live. God tells Israel the way back is true repentance. And true repentance is more than saying and feeling sorry for what we have done. True repentance is turning away from our sins. And it's not just turning away from our sins, it's casting away in verse 31. In verse 31 it says, we have to cast them away. And casting away does not mean just throwing aside our sinful ways. It means taking on something new. It's an, you need to take on a new heart and a new spirit. Um, and that's the new life that he has given us. And he will give to uh, the exiles, uh, the people of Israel, if they would turn to him. He's going to give them a new heart and a new spirit. And we can reflect on this promise um, as this is just as real to them as to us. We need a new heart and a new spirit. This promise is fulfilled in the New Testament as Jesus transforms our lives and gives us the Holy Spirit. And finally, we see the heart of God. This is really, really crucial when you look at verse 32. I love this. It is the heart of God calling out in love and forgiveness. He calls out, why? Why should you die? I have no pleasure in the death of anyone. So turn and live. And God's invitation to repentance shows his loving kindness and his mercy to those who are willing to repent. He is ever willing to forgive our sins. The sad fact is that the Israelites in the land did not repent. They continued in their sins and idolatry. In 586 BC, King Zedekiah rebelled against Babylon. And the Babylonian king, Nebuchadnezzar, came with his armies and he leveled Jerusalem and destroyed the temple completely. King Zedekiah was made to watch his children die before his eyes. And they blinded him and led him into slavery. You read that in 2 Kings chapter 25. And the temple was destroyed in Ezekiel. You can read that in chapter 33. 33. But there is hope as we can see. And we can see that in the next uh, few sermons uh, on Ezekiel. So, please come back and uh, finish the series on Ezekiel. So, sin and judgment does not have to be our, the last word. Does not have to be the last word. The door is wide open, even now, for Israel and for us. God's invitation is just the same. For them as for us today, to our troubled world, to turn to Jesus and live. The sentence of death can be lifted. The choice is very much up to you and me. For the Jews, one day they will be restored. 
from exile. And God will reveal his glory through the promised Messiah, Jesus Christ. As we look back, God has already done it in our day and in our time. The Apostle Paul in Romans 2 sums it up very clearly. God will render to each one according to his works. To those who by patience in well-doing, who by patience in well-doing seek for glory and honour in immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek. But glory, honour and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek. For God shows no partiality. God does not show favouritism to anybody because his judgments, his judgments are fair and ju just. Remember also that God disciplines or chastises us or judges us not because he wants to make us suffer. He disciplines us because he loves us. He says, My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is actually treating us as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline. It comes from Hebrews chapter 12. God disciplines us because he loves us. He is chastising, judging Israel so that they would repent and turn back to him to save them. And similarly, God disciplines us because he is a loving and merciful father. So ladies and gentlemen, as I said, we are in the courtroom. You are the jurors. What is your verdict? Is God just and fair? You have heard God's correction of his word. God has illustrated this principle of personal responsibility. You have heard the objections that were raised by the accusers. And you've seen God's heart behind his invitation. Is God fair when he makes each person culpable for their own actions and decisions? Is God fair when he gives the sinner an opportunity to repent and turn to him? Is God fair when he shows his heart of love and forgiveness? To those who earnestly seek him? From the evidence given, is it not God? It is not God who's been unfair. It is the people of Israel 
And we can include ourselves because we are just as guilty as the Apostle Paul says. So we can firmly conclude that such strong evidence that God is a God of justice. He's also a holy God. And He is a loving and merciful God. So what can we take away from Ezekiel this morning? Five points I just want to quickly go through with you. First, we can see the importance of using the Word of God correctly in discerning many of the decisions in our life. We can rely on the Holy Spirit, who is our teacher and guide. We also need to make wise choices in our lives. And we can do this with the help of the Word of God and the Holy Spirit. Jesus has given us eternal life and he has freed us from the bondage of sin. So if we are still living with habitual sin in our lives, will, we, will you turn and repent of our sins and cast them aside? We have a great privilege and honor to be living in the light of the New Testament. John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world, he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. So we can thank God that we have a new life in Christ. We have been born again. And our hard hearts have been replaced with a heart of flesh. And we have the power of the Holy Spirit to help us to live righteous lives. But that's not all. Remember that if you have known the life of God, we also have the responsibility to share the good news of life to those who are perishing. It is our duty and our responsibility to bring this life to others. Our plea to them is that why? Why should you die? God has no pleasure in the death of anyone. So turn and live. Similar to Ezekiel, we are called to be the watchmen of God. We are also called to be messengers of God to the world. There's a probing question. When was the last time that you spoke to someone regarding the abundant life in Christ? When was the last time that you share with your family, your friends, or someone in the community regarding the good news? As God leads us, will you go forth and share the good news with someone today? And if you are not a Christian, what are you doing about it? Can I invite you after the service to speak to someone regarding this important decision that you can make in your life? Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And if you like to find out more about this, please stay back and talk to someone. Or I'll be around for a while. We can talk together. I'll be just happy. To discuss this with you. So let me pray as we end.
and then we'll sing our last um, benediction song. Let's pray. Our Father, Lord, this is not an easy message for us, the message of judgment, but in the midst of it, we find that there is hope. There is hope in Christ. We pray that you will help us to apply what we've learned to our lives. Thank you for reminding us that there is honor and glory and peace for everyone who does good. But there will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For God shows no partiality. You have no favoritism. You are a fair and a just God. Help us to be your messengers of life to this dying and troubled world. In Jesus' name, amen.